verses 18 to 27. Please turn your Bibles there with me. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, The Christ of God. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And he must be killed on the third day, and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Let's return to the scripture we read this morning with Tyler from Luke chapter 9. As I told you in the announcements, if you're visiting, we have been in a study in the gospel according to Luke, verse by verse, episode by episode, event by event. And we're in the ninth chapter, the 18th verse. The question of the ages. Before we look at this passage, let's pray and ask Jesus who was there with his disciples then. He's here this morning with his disciples. Let's ask him to teach us. Our Father, we relish this time every week in our worship. When we bow before you, the one time during the week we bow before you as a congregation of priests. Not just one priest, not just the priests of our family, but Father, the priests of Christ Presbyterian Church. And we unite our hearts, Father, in thanking you for this great privilege that we have of being priests for each other, of being priests for the world around us. Our Father, those who are really hurting in our midst this morning are heavy on our hearts. We pray for Doris Beasley, who's not a part of this congregation, this church family, but she's a part of the body of Christ. And we pray for her. We pray that she would be able to have surgery, a healing surgery. We pray for Priscilla Turner. We thank you for her constant testimony in our midst. Your testimony to strength in the midst of hard times. 
of peace in the midst of sickness. Father, we pray that you would bring healing to her body. But most of all, we pray that you would continue to give her that unshakable faith and trust that she rests in your sovereign, omnipotent, nail-scarred hands. Our Father, we pray for Larry Shelley this morning. We pray for healing for him. But again, Father, we pray most of all that he will have an unshakable confidence as he stands upon your word, upon your promises, upon your truth. Our Father, we pray for the farmers of Fayette County, for the farmers of this congregation. We give you thanks, Father, for the crops that are in the field, for the harvest that is taking place and will take place. We pray that, Father, you would bless with appropriate weather. We ask that this would be a good season, a good fall, a good harvest for the farmers of Fayette County. Blessedness. Our Father, we pray for the event that will take place at Fayette Ware this Wednesday evening. We pray that, Father, you would build a hedge around that event. We pray that, Father, it would be a time of wonderful blessing that you would pour out your spirit upon the Christians who will gather for this time around your word. And now as we open your word, we confess once more that John Sartell is not able to teach so that it will make any difference in our lives. Our Father, you know my heart. You know that I know that. My confidence is not in my ability or my knowledge. Our Father, this morning, our confidence is only in the truth of your word and in the power of your Holy Spirit to bring that word to our lives. And so we ask once more in your great grace that you would speak to us in this room, each one of us where we are. We're at different places, Father, different ages, different concerns. but you're able to speak it all to all of us exactly where we are at the same time. May we know when we leave here in a few minutes that we have heard you speak. In Jesus' name, change us, Father. Change us. Maybe some of us for the first time. For the glory of Christ. Amen. The question of the ages. CNN's Larry King was asked if he could interview one person from past history. It's already someone that had lived and uh, was part of the past. If you could talk to anybody, interview anybody, who would it be? He didn't have to think. He immediately replied, 
that the interview that he wanted to do most would be an interview with Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ. What would you ask him? He answered, I was asked him if he was indeed born of a virgin. Why would he ask that question? Because that would explain everything. Well, in the text this morning, Jesus answers Larry King's question. I want to come immediately to this passage. And I want you to see first the weighty question that demanded prayer. The weighty question that demanded prayer. Luke 9, 18. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples there were, were there with him, he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? What was happening in this scene? Jesus is praying alone. The word privately is used. It means he was all from his disciples by some space praying. His disciples were around. He had taken his disciples away from the crowds. And then Jesus stepped apart from the disciples to pray. The disciples should have known that something important was about to take place. They were off to themselves and Jesus was praying privately away from them. They should have known. In the Gospels, you will find that before every significant event, you find Jesus praying. Every time, without exception. He prayed as he was being baptized. Look at Luke 3, 21. And as he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came down from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. Think about it. He spent 40 days fasting and praying in the wilderness as he confronted Satan. And before beginning his public ministry. Think about it. He prayed officially, he prayed before officially naming the 12 disciples. Remember Tyler's message just a few weeks ago from Luke 6, 12? Look at the 12th verse. One of those days, Jesus went out to the mountainside to pray. He spent the night praying to God. When morning came, at the end of his prayer, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he designated the apostles. Before he finalized, his choice. He prayed all night. He prayed in Gethsemane before his arrest and trial. And what was he doing in the text this morning? What was he doing before he asked the long-awaited question? He was praying. Look at 18 again. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? That prayer is directly related to that question. It tells you that a great event, a significant event was about to take place. An event that Jesus considered terribly important. Why was this so important? As we read this, this morning, you probably did not say, wow, this is one crucial point. In the life of Jesus. Since Jesus called the disciples. He had been aiming toward this single question. 
Every miracle had been done in anticipation of this question. After the calming of the storm, remember the great storm that was about to destroy them on the Sea of Galilee? After calming the storm, what did the disciples say? Who is this man that even the wind and waves obey? They were asking the question among themselves. After forgiving the paralytic sins, remember that when they thought he would heal the paralytic and he forgave, he first forgave his sins. The Pharisees asked the question, who is this man? That forgives sins. Only God can forgive sins. After raising the boy from the dead and named the widow's son, he had heard them say, who is this that can raise the dead? That was his purpose. His purpose by this miraculous activity was to prompt the question, who is this? Who is this? You see, before they could understand, before they could begin to understand what he had come to do, before they could understand the radical nature of his mission, they first had to understand who he was. It's important for you to know, mark it down. To this time in his teaching, to this time in his teaching, he had not mentioned the cross. He had not mentioned dying for sin. He had not mentioned the resurrection. He had not mentioned his mission. Why? Because first they had to understand who he was. This was no small matter. This verse, this time, was the culmination of the first part of his ministry. It would beginning, it would mark the beginning of another part of his ministry. Jesus was praying. This was a crucial moment in his ministry. Jesus' own answer to the question of who he was would be the world's reason for killing him. The disciples had asked themselves, who is this? The Pharisees had asked among themselves, who is this? But there came a time when that question was asked of Jesus. Look at verse 20, look at Luke 22, verse 66. It's on your scripture sheet. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and teachers of the law, met together. And Jesus was led before them. There's Jesus before the Sanhedrin. If you are the Christ, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you'll not believe me. And if I ask you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all ask, are you then the Son of God? You are right in saying I am. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Those words, his confession, that he was the Son of God, condemned him in their sight. They thought he was blasphemous. How ironic. The question Jesus asked of the disciples, who do you say that I am? That same question was asked of Jesus by the Sanhedrin. Who do you say you are? Are you the son of God? His answer brought a death sentence. 
So why was his identity so tied with his mission to the great work the Father had called him to do? When the disciples answered this question, only then, only then did Jesus disclose the details of his mission. Luke 9, 22. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Why was his identity so important to his mission? And it was. Why? Only the Son of God could die that atoning death. Only the Son of God to take our sins upon himself and suffer the horrendous judgment of God. Only the Son of God and Son of Man could die that awful death and return victoriously. Jesus' identity was essential to the gospel. Thus, when you read the preaching of the disciples in the rest of the New Testament, they could not preach the saving gospel of Jesus Christ without preaching his Messiahship and his deity. Matthew, Luke, and John, how did they begin their gospels? They didn't begin their gospels with the cross. They didn't begin their gospels with the sinfulness of man. They began their gospels with the incarnation, the Son of God becoming flesh. All the disciples came to the same place Jesus did. You see, they died rather than deny his deity. His deity was the reason, their confession of his deity was the reason for the disciples' martyrdom. Think about it. The disciples of the first and second centuries were not martyred because they believed Jesus died for their sins. That's not why they were killed. That was okay to say that in the Roman world. Jesus died for my sins. They were martyred because they believed and confessed that Jesus was God and that he alone was God. Now that weighty question, who do you say that I am? Demanded prayer. I lived with this this week and now you're going to live with it. For just a minute. I didn't want to I didn't want to make this point in my message because it came down to my own prayers and my prayer life. If Jesus needed to bathe these times in prayer, if Jesus needed to bathe these times in prayer, how much more should we bathe the events of our lives in prayer? What is taking place in your life this week? What is taking place in your life this week? A job opportunity? An interview? A history test? Playing at a football game? A conversation with your son or daughter? A conversation with your husband or wife? If the sinless and omnipotent Son of God thought prayer was that important, how much more should we bathe everything in our lives in prayer? Let me ask you a question. What is happening in your life this week 
that you can look at and say, well, I don't need to pray about that. I love the story of Billy Sunday, a professional baseball player in Chicago who became an evangelist in the Presbyterian Church, by the way. After he became a Christian, he played, continued to play ball for Chicago, played in the outfield. And the reporters one day asked him, said, we see you chase a fly ball, and it looks like you're talking to yourself. What do you say? He said, I'm not talking to myself. He said, well, you're lifting him to, to, who, to whom are you talking? He said, I'm talking to God. And they said, why are you talking to God chasing a fly ball? He said, I'm asking, them, I'm asking him to help me catch that fly ball, of course. You know, most of us laugh at that. Billy Sunday was not laughing. There's a verse in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. The King James says, pray, finish it, without ceasing. You know the verse, pray without ceasing. The NIV that we read this morning says, pray continually, pray constantly. You need to know that that Greek word there translated continually, or without ceasing, it's used six times in the New Testament. Only six times. Five of those times it's used in conjunction with prayer. There's never a moment in our lives when we don't need to pray. Learning to be constant in prayer every day may be the godly discipline that is most ignored. We think about stopping in the morning and having prayer. We think about maybe stopping in the evening and having prayer. What's described here is a life that goes through the day praying. It's good to stop in the morning and pray. Don't stop doing that. It's good to stop late. Don't stop doing that. But learn from this. Just ask yourself this question. What am I doing that doesn't need prayer? There's nothing. If Russ is training his dogs, he needs prayer training those dogs. Whatever you're doing, if I'm playing golf, I certainly need prayer. Whatever. We laugh, but it's true, folks. The weighty question that demanded prayer. Secondly, I want you to see that the question was not asked immediately upon meeting Jesus. Jesus had not asked this question before. Look at Luke 9, 18. Once when Jesus was praying in private, the disciples were with him. He asked them, who did the crowd say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and still others. That one of the prophets long ago has come back. And then Jesus said, but who do you say I am? Do you know the disciples had been with Jesus for almost two years when he asked this question? John the baptizer had already been executed by Herod. 
Therefore the disciples answered, Some say you're John the Baptist, returned from the grave. For almost two years they had witnessed Jesus doing what no other prophet in Israel had ever done. He had shown them who he was. He had healed the sick. He had made the blind to see, healed thousands, raised the dead, stopped a huge storm in his tracks, fed 5,000 people with two fish and several loaves of bread. He had been watching their reaction every time. But he had never before this day said, who do you think I am? You see, he gave the disciples time to watch and to listen. As Christians out in the world, we sometimes forget this. You see, we want to, if we tell a person about Jesus or we start praying about a person, we want them to believe immediately. Even Jesus, the greatest preacher that ever lived, the greatest communicator of the gospel that ever lived, even he gave his disciples time to watch, to listen, to think, to understand, to digest what they had seen and heard. If we went all over the county today and asked the question, do you believe in Jesus? Is Jesus attractive to you? You would be surprised how many people would say yes. You know what would surprise you? That the people that say yes, some are absolute pagans. Many, in fact most, might be members of no church, people that never go to church, but they like Jesus' stories. They're like some of you say, yeah, yes, I like Jesus. I know people who would tell you, friends of mine, who would tell you they believe in Jesus. They don't believe he's God. When I went to seminary, that's where most of my professors were. They said, yes, we believe in Jesus. They didn't believe he was God. They didn't believe in the virgin birth that it happened. They didn't believe he did all the miracles, or any miracles for that matter. They don't believe he's coming again. They don't believe he died an atoning death. They believe he was a prophet. They believe he was a great moral man. They believe he was a supreme example. I once heard Francis Schaeffer preach in Atlanta. It's the only time I heard him preach in person. And he was preaching on this text. And he was saying, in our day, when someone says, I believe in Jesus, we must ask immediately, which one? Which Jesus? You see, Jesus gave his disciples time to watch and think. What would they say this morning to the person in Fayette County that says, what would, what would Luke, what would, what would John or Matthew, what would, what would they say to one of our neighbors in Fayette County? He said, oh, I believe in Jesus. I don't believe he was God. I don't believe he did all those miracles. What would they say? They would say, 
then you don't believe in Jesus. We were there. We saw him. This is who Jesus was. This is what he did. We saw it. He made the blind to see. This morning, if you're not sure about this, if you're saying, John, I'm not sure how I would answer that question. Who do I say Jesus is? I'm not sure about him being the Son of God. It's okay. I will assure you Jesus will keep asking you the question. Read the gospel according to Luke. Read the gospel according to John. Think about it. Think about it. Ask Jesus to keep asking you the question and revealing the answer to that question. The weighty question that demanded prayer the question was not asked immediately upon meeting Jesus. That's why we study. That's why. That's why we go to our we go to our Bibles. Finally, I want you to see it was a distinguishing question. What do you mean distinguishing? Jesus intended to separate himself from all the other gods. A distinguishing question. Look at Luke 9.20. But what about you? He said, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you're the Christ of God. In this passage, notice it. Jesus did not ask, do you believe in me? That's not what he asked. He didn't say, do you love me? He asked, who do you say I am? It's a question of identity. Define me in concrete terms. Who am I? When the disciples told him that some of the folks defined him as a great prophet, that answer was unacceptable. Do you see that? The answer was insufficient. One does not go up to the President of the United States and say, Mr. Mayor. One does not go to the President of the United States and say, Senator or Congressman. He's a President. There are well-meaning people who say, I believe Jesus was the greatest teacher who ever lived. Others say, I believe he was the greatest man who ever lived. That is an insult to the Father. It's an insult to Jesus. He did what no teacher could ever do, no matter how great. He made the blind to see by fiat. I don't know about you, but I know I've never seen anyone make the blind to see by fiat. For those of you that go to Ole Miss, fiat means command. By command. He did not pray. He did not say, Father, make this blind man see. He said, see, and the man saw. 
He commanded the deaf to hear and they heard. Here's a crippled man. He can't walk. Get up and walk. And the man walked away. Only God could do that. We've never stood in a rainstorm. We talked about this when Jesus stopped us. We've never stood. Any of us have stood in a rainstorm. We've prayed that God would keep the rain away. Or we've prayed for the rain. But we've never stopped, stood in the middle of a rainstorm and said, Stop! We don't have that power. No man who ever lived had that power. Except Jesus. There's only one answer for which Jesus is looking. There was only one right answer. Matthew tells us, and by the way, write this down, Matthew 16. Luke's version of this story is a little bit shorter than Matthew's. Turn to Matthew 16 when you go home and read it. In Matthew 16, he took the disciples apart. Where did they go? They went. They didn't go to Jerusalem or to the temple. They went to Caesarea Philippi, a city on the northern border of Israel. It was a city filled with temples to other gods. In that city filled with other religions, in that place of pluralistic religion, that's where Jesus asked the question. Why? He was distinguishing himself. The Muslim says Jesus was a great prophet. That's not a right answer. Prophets don't forgive sins. Prophets don't claim to be God. Prophets don't come back from the grave. Prophets don't command the blind to see. You must ask your Muslim friend if he was a great prophet. Why did he claim to be God? The Buddhist says Jesus was like Buddha. He pointed to a way. You hear this a lot today as our culture is being influenced from the East. Jesus was like Buddha. He pointed to a way. Jesus. Jesus didn't claim to be pointing to a way. He said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one can come to the Father but by me. It was a distinguishing question. C.S. Lewis wrote the Narnia Chronicles. Supposed to be stories for children. Uh, and I hope as parents you've read them to your children. Uh, but I promise you, whatever your age is in this room, if you got them this week and started reading them as an adult, whether you're 20 or whether you're 90, you would enjoy the Narnia Chronicles. Marvelous, marvelous books written by C.S. Lewis. There's... A land called Narnia. And there is a lion in Narnia, a great lion. His name is Aslan. He represents Christ. And by the way, I would just tell you that I'm not sure that I'm not sure you can be a Christian without reading these books. I mean, it may be that as you walk into heaven at the gate, they might ask you, have you read the Narnia Chronicles? They might. 
In the fourth book, The Silver Chair, a little girl named Jill enters the imaginary kingdom of Narnia for the first time. And there she sees Aslan, the lion. And as I said, Aslan represents Christ. Aslan is lying beside a stream of water, of cool water, beautiful water. Jill is very thirsty. She's been crying. And the lion asks her, are you thirsty? I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. As Jill gazed at the motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men and kings and emperors and cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say that as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step near. I I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. Where did Lewis get that? He got it from Jesus. There is no other stream. There's no other Savior. There's no other Calvary. There's no other Creator. That's what Jesus was saying to the disciples. I am who I am and there is no other. Our last scripture it's Romans 10, 9. Look at it on your sheet. Listen to Paul. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Look at the order there. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, that he's God, that there is no other, you confess that. You confess who he is. And then your faith is in what he did, the resurrection. Paul understood it. Where did he get it? He got it from Jesus in Caesarea Philippi. Who do you say that I am? And after you confess that, you come to faith in what he did. Larry King. will not be the interviewer. Jesus is the interviewer. Jesus has already answered King's question. And Jesus is asking King, 
He's asking all of us the question of the ages. Who do you say I am? We're going to sing our answer with that great hymn.